We live in a world plagued by pornography, and people are looking for help. When an individual struggles with pornography, they often turn to their church leader for that help. How does a leader help a person overcome the shame of this issue and start seeing positive progress? How can a leader help youth to open up about struggles with pornography? What are some lasting, proven tactics that actually make a difference? In order to help, Leading Saints has created the Liberating Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of those most popular sessions are available to watch now. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit leadingsaints.org liberating. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three most popular sessions of the Liberating Saints Library. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, like this podcast, which we hope you will subscribe to. We also have a website at leadingsaints.org with thousands of incredible articles all about leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint. We host virtual summits, live events, and also have a weekly newsletter to keep you up to date on all things happening with Leading Saints. Visit leadingsaints.org for more information. Today I've returned to a place I've recorded once before, and that is the Church History Library with Keith Erickson. How are you, Keith? Good. Welcome awesome. back. Yeah. Well, and how long have you been here now? It's just over seven years. Nice. And what is your official title? What do they call you around here? Well, I started, and for most of the time, I've been the director of the library. Uh-huh. And But in recent months, I've started handing off the day-to-day operational work and moving more and more into the space of doing outreach and partnership work. And so I don't technically have a title yet. We're kind of still in transition and defining things, but that's cool. where it's going. But you have an office and that's where I, we're at. I still so. have an office yeah. and I, yeah. Cool. And you are recently released the book, Real Verse Rumor, How to Dispel Latter-day Myths. And this is, I believe, published by Desert Book, right? That's correct. So you can find it there and- uh, all major Latter-day Saint bookstores, and of course, Amazon, where, I mean, is there, that's where people go these What's days. not there, right? <laughs> exactly. So, what led to you submitting this manuscript, or did they ask you to do it, or? That's a great question. You know, uh, they didn't ask for it. It was something I've been working on and, and really thinking about for a long time. And even before I came here, I was a history professor and really interested in public history and the way people connect with history. And so that inevitably involves that people think of all kinds of weird stuff about history. And so history <laughs> teachers are often kind of teaching the full story or, or helping people see things in context. So that was kind of my long background. But then, but yeah, coming to the church history library, I just regularly encountered people who would, you know, they'd want to donate something or they'd have a question about church history. And I just over and over and over again, I went away from those encounters thinking, wow. People really need to know how to think about history better. <laughs> yeah. And so that kind of came together with the concept to to put it into a book. Yeah, that's great. 
Now, I want to frame this discussion. You've done some phenomenal interviews on other podcasts. One I'll mention is with Morgan Jones on the All In podcast. We'll link to that one. I felt like it was just a superb like overview of the book and and a you know really it was a fun one as well as you dispelled some of the the rumors. That was fun. Uh, Thank so, you. And so we'll link to that. But I want to really dig in, obviously, with the leading saints audience from a leadership standpoint because yeah. so much of history and information and quotes and doctrines really feed into. The leadership experiences. And, and I recently wrote this series of articles, just simple newsletter articles about, basically titled the five, the five reasons for negative church culture. Because there's this thing you probably hear it all the time, like, oh, that's not doctrine, that's culture, right? And right. we do it so much that nobody's really asking, okay, where, where, where did this culture come from? Is this, this ugly monster in the corner? Everybody's saying, yep, there it is, but nobody's asking where did it come from? So I just tried to sit down and say, all right, what are the reasons that negative church culture happens in our organization or maybe in any organization? And one of the things that I argue is a cause of negative church culture is misunderstanding doctrine. And that sometimes relates to misunderstanding history because then somebody says something and then we sort of take it as, oh, well, that's doctrine because it was said once somewhere and we should do that. And I always give the hard time to Elder Packard's talk, the unwritten order of things. That I, right. And for... The reference, I believe, is 1996 at a BYU devotional is where he gave that. I may be wrong, but at least I know it happened, okay? I thought it was unwritten. <laughs> oh, no, right? He wrote the talk, but it's about unwritten things. But anyways, I'm sort of like, will somebody please sit down and write these things so that they're not unwritten anymore? But anyways, there's just this information, this soup of information that people sort of grab onto what uh, maybe is convenient for them and whatnot. And so that's sort of what I want to frame that is if we can get dispel rumors and his, or dispel false history, I think it's going to stimulate a, a more positive culture. So, and then I attended at Education Week, at your session, and I heard Thank this story. You. I'm going to make you start with this story, the girls camp story, because okay. this is so related to, to, church, or to, to church leadership. So tell us what happened at this one girls camp. Yeah, this is a wonderfully instructive story. So the leaders of the girls camp prepared, and in their preparation, they came up with a theme. Mm -hmm. And the theme of the, that they selected was aim high. And they wanted to inspire the girls to do whatever they wanted to do in life. You know, this is a great time to be a young person. There are so many opportunities for education, career. And, and so they wanted to get them excited. So then after that, they said, well, we need a scripture to go with our yeah. theme. And so I don't know. They went looking in the scriptures. Somebody came back and they found one in, in Second Nephi. And, uh, you know, they, they read a, a couple of words from the scripture and the, the, the group said, oh, that, that is the scripture. That goes right <laughs> with aim high. And so I'll paraphrase it, but it basically says, you know, I will ascend to the clouds. I will be, be like the most high. And so they said, yeah, that's what, you know, we're daughters of God. We want to uh, ascend. We want to aim high. We want to be like God. That's exactly our theme. And so as they prepared, <clears throat> they then made all kinds of stuff for camp and they put this theme and the scripture reference on it. So the theme, aim high, the scripture reference from Second Nephi were on the t-shirts. They were on the posters. They were on the little study journal. <laughs> yeah, we they were on right the now. water bottles. That you know, everywhere the girls went in the in the camp cafeteria at the events, uh the the theme was plastered everywhere. And then all of their activities were framed around the theme. So the stake president came and he talked about the theme on in his talk and and uh, other stake leaders, and they prepared in the run-up to the camp, you know, in the months before, they talked about the theme and got people excited about it. And so, in this environment, 
of just talking about the theme and aiming high. Seems like it's going well. You know, <clears throat> it was going well. I mean, this is like a major marketing success, right? <laughs> you've created a theme, you've stamped it everywhere, and, and people are thinking about it. And so one night, some of the girls back in their tent said to each other, hey, let's read the chapter that our theme is from. Yeah. And so they all pull out Second Nephi and they start reading. And it turns out that it's from the section in Second Nephi where Nephi is quoting from Isaiah. And so it's kind of uh, visual language and lots of imagery. And they're, and they're kind of reading through it and they, they can make sense of it. We, that's one myth that Isaiah is hard to understand. Yeah, they sure. got it. They're reading through. They're like, okay, this is good. We're talking about things. Then they get to about, you know, verse nine or 10 in that chapter. And then one of them says, uh oh. Uh, because in the chapter then introduces a character who starts to speak, and that character is Lucifer. And the chapter is about kind of the, the dialogue in the pre-mortal uh, experience where they're talking about the plan. And so Lucifer says, no, let's not do that. Let's do it my way because I will ascend to the clouds. I will be like <laughs> the Most High. And the girls drop their books and they say, our theme is from Lucifer? <laughs> and they're just shocked. And, uh, and so the next morning, they go out, they find their stake leaders, and they say, we read, our, we read this last night. Our theme is from Lucifer. And the stake leaders say, yeah, we, we actually discovered that, but it was after we had printed all of the banners and everything. So please don't tell anyone what you found. So I just think, you know... Wow. A couple of losses there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And you actually got your hands on one of these journals, right? With the... I did. So the girls, uh, this was a camp on, along the Wasatch Front and they, uh -huh. they connected with me. I, I actually have a study journal and a t-shirt. <laughs> Put it in the archives here at the, at the <laughs> that's, library. That's, that's awesome. It's in my personal archives for now. That's so awesome. these are great, great uh, examples so, of, of bad thinking. So obviously that's sort of a funny story, obviously, and bless their hearts. You know, leadership is hard. And that's a good example of like, you know, you try so hard and just that little mistake of, oh, I didn't read the context suddenly destroys your girl's camp. So you try and salvage it, right? But what are some general principles or lessons we can learn from, from something like that? You know, I think the, the big one you named there is to, to always make sure we're reading in context. And as, as Latter-day Saints, we, like other people, like to just pull things out of context and use them to prove things. And there's a term for that, proof texting. But, you know, but the, the dynamic is backwards. The dynamic is I have a position that I want to argue for, and I'll go find something to prove it. Where the, the right dynamic is to say, let me submit myself, let me humble myself, I'll go to the scriptures and find what God wants me to know, not find ammunition for the thing that I am already determined to to do and argue and advocate for. Yeah. And that's really difficult at times because I find it in my own where in my pondering and scriptures and I'm trying to make sense of the gospel in general, I come across a concept and or, or I sort of connect things in my mind and I think, yeah, that really makes sense. I'm going to go find quotes and scriptures that sort of back that up, you know, and, and sometimes that, sure, you'll go and you'll find scriptures that back it up. Other times it's sort of like, well, sort of backs it up. I'll take that one. And now I have yeah. a, a scripture reference or two, right? And one of the, the tips I advocate in the book is that that's good to do. You know, you want to read all the scriptures. And in fact, the scriptures are, are filled with so many different stories and things that one of their strengths is, you know, if you want to learn about faith, there isn't just one chapter. There are dozens of stories. And you, so you can get all kinds of angles and nuances and dimension of what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. But the thing to remember 
is that whenever you use one of those, you want to make sure in your use, it means the same thing as in its original use. And that's kind of the link. So yeah, I mean, you don't, you can pull out a phrase, you can pull out a word, that's totally fine. But what you want to do is pull it out in a way that it it's and and then use it in a way that it still means what Nephi meant or Alma meant or, yeah. or Joseph Smith. Yeah. And this is interesting as I prepared for this, like one concept I, I, I like and appreciate, and Elder Elder Packer actually said this at, at BYU in 1981 about something can be true but not useful. I'm paraphrasing the comment there, but and sometimes and I appreciate that concept of just in general of like, you know, a lot of times in leadership, you may say something that's true, but it's not useful to that individual. And so I could almost be like, and Elder Packer said it here in 1981. But if you go back and look at the context, he's talking in the context of church history and studying church history. And he was sort of, and I think we've come a long way since then with more information, but he was talking about in the context of, we can teach everything in the church history, but and it may be true, but that doesn't mean it's useful in building our faith or so forth. So we just have to be careful with maybe how we use church history in that context. So that's an example of maybe I'm sort of shoehorning my motivations or what my point into a quote from a, from an apostle, right? Right. And there are also ways that we can think about different uses. So a thing doesn't have to be useful in the same way to everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one of the ways I talk about that in the book is with the term significance. Historians tend to use that term and there, there are multiple layers. It could be significant in the past. You know, it could have caused dramatic things to happen 200 years ago. And it doesn't cause anything to happen today mm-hmm. because it was really significant then, not now. There are other things we find from the past and we, we pull them forward and we say, oh, this is really useful. The, the founding fathers did such and such when we're, we're making it have a use. And then there's also a personal d- dimension of significance. It might just be useful to me because my ancestor did it. And it might not, <laughs> nobody else in the world might think that's useful. But I look at that and say, oh, that was my ancestor. That's yeah. pretty cool. And so- but a lot of times we, we think, well, I think it's cool because my ancestor did it. So I'm going to tell you a 45-minute story about my ancestor. And you're thinking, oh, <laughs> let me out of here. Help, help. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. So and we've sort of touched on it as far as quoting responsibility. Uh, what responsibility we have when we, we start using quotes. Anything else as far as laying the foundation of that? Yeah. You know, I think every time you, you do a quote, there are just certain elements, certain pieces, and it's like a puzzle. And if you're missing one, it's incomplete. But you know, you, you want to have the speaker, you want to have the exact words, you want to know the source where those exact words came from, and then you want to have an understanding of you know, what it meant for that speaker. And, yeah. and if, if you don't have any of those pieces, I, I say you're not ready to share that information. Mm-hmm. Go, go study some more. But without that, you, you know, yeah. We're not quite there yet. <laughs> That's right. So coach me through a scenario, even a quote that I've shared many times on this very podcast, and I realize I may need to repent, but let me set up the scenario where how I learned about it and whatnot. My brother was serving, he was either in a state presidency or a bishop, or a bishop and he went to one of these meetings that the apostles hold with a, a group of stakes, and they've had all the stake presidencies and all the bishops to come and ask questions and be you know, learn from from an apostle. And I, in my time as a bishop and a stake prince, I had several opportunities to meet some apostles and it was awesome. So he comes home from this and he says, wow, it was a phenomenal meeting. And uh, and he said this quote that was so great. He said that the uh, the lay leadership of the church is one of the most modern, is a modern day miracle. The fact that lay leaders can, can move this mission forward. Now, obviously he was paraphrasing. I was probably further paraphrasing, but for a guy who runs a leadership podcast, I'm like, man, that is so true. 
Like the fact that the restored gospel runs on lay leadership. So many times I've, and it was Elder Holland that was at this meeting. Okay. So many times I've said, Elder Holland has said that, right? That the the lay leadership of the church is one of the greatest modern day miracles, right? Now, I believe the idea, even if Elder Holland never said it, I believe the idea. So how would you coach me through that? Should I just not say that Elder Holland said it? Should I just say, I believe that... The, the lay leadership of the church is one of the greatest modern day miracles. Where am I going around there and, and what should I do? Yeah, I think <laughs> there are a lot of options. I think the first one I would advocate for is to see if you can find it somewhere, mm. you know, find a source. Gotcha. And what often happens is things that they say in these kinds of meetings show up in other settings where there is a transcript, you know, and it might be at a BYU devotional or mm-hmm. it might be it might be in general conference or it might be you know, in one of their books that, that they publish or something. So, so that's usually where I would start is see if I can, I've heard something around, let me go see if I can find uh, somewhere where they've said that or something like that. If that doesn't work, then the next best thing is usually to admit in some way, <laughs> you know, that, that trail of how you got it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, my, my brother was at a meeting and he reported this to me. And then that at least frames to people what that, what that helps with is, you know, setting up for you to say, you know, this uh, this is an exact quote. This is this is a paraphrase. Here's the idea, and, mm-hmm. and I think the idea is meaningful and powerful, and you know, and so, but yeah, they're kind of, you know, you have more confidence the more of those elements you have, yeah. and then the fewer you have, you you wonder. And then you know, one thing that has always struck me when I listen to talks like a general conference and then go back and read them is uh, my own memory is often different. Yeah, I'm like. Oh, I remembered that differently, but here, <laughs> here it is. And then sometimes I'll see, you know, oh, let me go. I thought I remember that really differently. And then I go uh-huh. listen to the the video audio. I'm like, nope, that, <laughs> there yeah. it was. And there are times maybe they adjust it. And <laughs> there are times they adjust. Yeah. So, you know, you check for that. But, you know, I go back and like, wow. And the other thing that happens that sometimes funny at events is, you know, if you go attend with another person and you walk out and then you talk to that person, you'll have different experiences, different yeah. things. Because you're you're different people, you're hearing different things, and they're touching different you know keywords or things you're thinking of or things you, that are on your mind or heart, and so things come out, and so so yeah, oral records are always you know just uh, yeah, so a, just a be, challenge. Maybe just being really upfront that I heard you know this was a third fourth hand account. I'm paraphrasing, and this was a meeting, but who knows you know. But I believe the principle. There's truth. I I believe that to be true, but. Anything else? What about in the context of you're a bishop on the stand and somebody's at the lectern and sacrament meeting and they're using a quote that seems a bit iffy? I mean, what, what do you do there? No, that's a really good question. And, and you made it hard by making it the bishop because <laughs> the bishop has more responsibility mm-hmm. for the outcome of things than other people. Sure. You know, other people in the congregation, you can kind of listen and, you know, for other people in the congregation, I usually encourage don't cause a scene in the meeting. Sure. Talk to them after, and that usually works. But as a bishop, you raise the stakes. You're on the stand. You're responsible. But I think there there are a couple of things at play as you sit there, and, and bishops know this. One of them is that some people are absolutely terrified to speak, and it took you eight months to persuade that person <laughs> just to get yeah. up there. Yep. And, you know, if you were to get up immediately after and correct that person, they will never come back to church again. So that's a factor. Yeah. And yeah. You, you kind of know who they are and how worried they are, how concerned. There are other people, you know, that you you probably know them really well, and you could probably get up right after them and say, 
you know, uh, what was said there was uh, not correct and here's the full quote or, or, or whatever. So a lot of it, I think, depends on knowing your people and, and how uh, they will respond. And then I think the, another factor is just how, you know, what's the depth of the, the error, yeah, you know, right. if it's just kind of they're passing along a silly story. Like, or, for example, uh, you referenced the David Omeke quote, no success in, what's the word? No success. Yeah, in, no other in, success can yeah, compensate for failure in the home. Yeah, yeah, they attribute that to David Omeke. You know, I'd probably just let that slide. Right, right. Not Whereas a big deal. in reality, he was quoting someone else and it came from another author. You know, probably not a big deal. But if they get up and were to say, you know, the position of the church is X and X is the opposite of Y, <laughs> which is actually the position of the church, then that might be- yeah. You know, so you're sort of gauging the impact of and the seriousness of yeah. the mistake. Or, yeah, as bishop, you you have to be using kind of that gift of discernment and yeah. judgment on the fly in yeah. that moment, and then yeah, follow the spirit. <laughs> yeah, and going back, like I said, with just the sometimes this negative church culture that can come out of misunderstanding doctrine or history. What would you say, just in a casual Sunday school class, where maybe the teacher says something or someone raises their hand and says, "Oh, have you heard about you know?" the inspired elevators in the Salt Lake Temple, which is another, you know, myth, right? Right. Because I feel like we sort of have a responsibility as a community to say, hey, listen, I appreciate the comment, but that's actually not true and and maybe fill in the gaps. Or is there another way to go about it? Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly that this is a community responsibility and we we want to help each other and we want to do it in love and patience and long suffering. And so I do think there are social dynamics at play there mm-hmm. as well too you know who's the teacher who are you how do you, how well do yeah. you know them you know if it's your first week in a new ward i wouldn't do it if it's uh but you know if you if you know them well I, and again some teachers are terrified to be there and so you know they may have they maybe the only thing they know about their topic is what's on their notes and they're working through that and if you kind of disrupt that you'll know right. the whole thing but you'll know kind of who the teacher is now if it's a teacher like some of my gospel doctrine teachers in the past that just get up and spout random stuff and they're just talking and filling the time, then you know, that, that's a different dynamic. Say, no, wait a minute. Let's not fill the time with that. Let's uh-huh. fill it with with something else. But I do think it's always more helpful if, and this this then kind of points back to you and your personal preparation, it's always more helpful when you're making a correction to be able to say, here's the accurate thing. Mm-hmm. And not just to say, I think that's wrong, but I don't know where. I think I heard it differently before. That doesn't really help. And so, you know, if uh, if you're able to say, uh, you know, and again, I mean, it used to be people had to like have all this memorized, but if you have your iPad or your phone or whatever, you can- Yeah, that's the beauty by, of that, right? By the yeah. time they finish telling the elevator story, you can search up the source online uh, that says, no, here's a, uh, it's not accurate. And, right. and so- it's always more effective to then fill the gap yeah. with with the with the correct information. Though sometimes I've 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 mused the uh, w- what it would be like because in the early days of the church, that was one of the speaking kind of strategies or frameworks. Uh, they would call on someone to get up and speak, and then but before the person spoke, they'd say, and then. Elder so-and-so will get up and correct what you said. Oh, really? And so there was like a dynamic of, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna preach what I preach, but there's somebody who's uh who's checking it. And um and Joseph would do it, he'd invite preachers from other churches to speak, and then he'd get up and say, uh, what was wrong or what was right, or so uh Wow. 
That'd be kind of fun. <laughs> also kind of intimidating. Yeah. Let uh, us know how that goes. Send us an email. I don't want to try it, but. <laughs> But if you're looking for a new format to to shake things up in gospel doctrine, uh, try that. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate you sort of uh, taking a swing at some of these. I realize it's not like a, you know, here's the three-step process, but, you know, because we all hear these things and I think it's helpful just to maybe have a general game plan or, or realize that, um, you know, they're new. Let's, let's just, it's not going to really, you know, I feel like sometimes there's this concept of, I call it the poison the well, where somebody spouts a, a doctrine or a false item and we feel like now everybody in the ward's going to believe that. So I need to stand up and I need to, even if the person's embarrassed, I got to make sure that nobody poisons the well. When in reality, most of the stuff that people say just sort of, you know, goes over the head or isn't, you know, absorbed. That well, way. and I would maybe put it this way. We don't live in a well anymore in yeah. the information age. We're right. in an ocean and there's all kinds of stuff and yeah. people have already heard all kinds of stuff. And so... Yeah, yeah. Whether they hear it in Sunday school <laughs> or on Facebook. They've already yeah. they've already heard some version yeah. of that somewhere, yeah. usually. Yeah. And one thing I've done, even in interviews where, you know, we're just talking and somebody will think, oh man, there's a great quote by President Oaks about that. And he says something like, yada, yada, yada. And while they're talking, I'll quickly just Google it and say, hey, let me read that quote to you. And I feel like, you know, we're sort of helping each other saying, actually, here's the reference. This is the exact verbiage he used. And now it's like, yeah, that is a powerful quote. And everybody knows that it's valid and things like that. So I think we can help each other out as well, rather than proving each other wrong, like type of thing. And you you said it really well. This is a story that didn't make it into the book, but I was in a ward council meeting uh, long ago when we had high priest group leaders. And the, he was giving the, it was one of those you know, oh, you have to give it a thought today. And he was like, oh, I didn't know or I forgot. So, you know, it's totally coming off the top of his head. (laughs) So after the prayer, he starts going off and he says, well, can't remember which general authority said this, but, and then he says the thing and I'm sitting there thinking, that just does not sound like any kind (laughs) of a church teaching. Both the, the content was wrong and then there was kind of a really hard, angry edge to it. I'm like, that just doesn't fit. So, I did what you said. I'm sitting there on my iPad. I search it up and, uh, you know, I, I type it in. And sure enough, it was, the statement he was making was the headline from a, a cable news station two days before. <laughs> oh, and so he had literally just taken in the cable news headline yeah. and stamped that as a general authority statement. <laughs> got mixed statement. up in his mind somehow. <laughs> and, um, you know, I won't say what, uh, what cable news channel it was, but I will say that that false doctrine crept into our meeting as slyly as a fox. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> nice. But it happens, yeah. you know. And that's a common <clears throat> phrase, like, I don't remember which general authority said it. That's sort of when to sort of maybe get that's your the first warning skepticism flag. That's when, that's when you should pull out your iPad and say, I'm going to search for this <laughs> yeah. because, yeah, it's going to be wrong or at least garbled when, yeah. they, when they start out that way. Any other general principles as far as uh, quoting responsibility that uh, we haven't touched on? You know, I think... Maybe I'll just share one kind of the one scenario we haven't used, which is when when you're sitting in the class and you feel the idea, oh, I want to share this thought, but you don't have all of those pieces. A lot of times people will share it anyway. And, you know, we've talked about, oh, I can't remember who said this, but my experience, my personal experience has been whenever I have a thought come to my mind in the class, but I don't have all of the pieces, what I've learned is that that's a call, a nudge for me to go study more. Mm. Because one of the things the scriptures tell us is that the Holy Ghost will bring all things to your remembrance. And so, my experience has been, if the Lord really wants me to teach something, kind of on a moment with that kind of 
instant inspiration. He'll give me all the pieces and I can teach it accurately and correctly and well. If he only gives me a few pieces, that is the encouragement for me to go do my homework. And so I'll go home that day, I'll look for things. And what I always find when I do that is even some of the pieces were incorrect. I thought it was this general authority, it was another one. I thought the words were this, but they were a little bit more like that. But what I then I went and got it straight. And then what I found every single time is once I have everything in order, there are multiple opportunities to share that information in the coming week with family, with friends, with the church. And what I've learned is that little half thought isn't the prompting to say, now speak stream of consciousness in class, Keith. The prompting is, here's nudge, go do your homework because uh-huh. I got some work for you coming up this week. And the class, it's a kind of inspiration that's getting me ready to do his work later. Yeah. yeah. What about the, the, I want to talk about this concept of, uh, I got this term from Anthony Sweat down at BYU, but he talks about this concept of spiritual trump cards where you may be in a ward council meeting and somebody starts a comment with something like, I feel really strongly that as if the spirit is talking to me right now. And so if you deny anything I say right now, you're denying the spirit, right? But I think it, it, the same thing plays out in some of these general authority quotes or historic quotes that we may find this one quote that an apostle in 1870 said and say, and that's why that's doctrine, right? So we sort of, then that's doctrine because that a general authority said, but then five other people can find five other quotes where another general authority sort of contradicted that, right? Right. And I did a great interview with Michael Goodman about this concept of doctrine and what does that mean? And when is something truly core doctrine of, of the gospel? But any thoughts as far as when when we try and prove a concept by using a quote, and what should we look out for of that? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing to look out for is if they only have one quote. Mm. If you're trying to make a case based on one statement, it's not enough. Yeah. But there are quotes, there are speakers from the past that spoke in very kind of ominously definitive ways. So when you pull out that quote, you can just drop it on the table and it sounds like, there's no more room for anything. Yeah. But if you sit there and think about it for 10 seconds, you'll you'll realize, oh wait, no, there's room for this and also that and uh-huh. also that. And but the the phrasing of it, the rhetoric of it is, is very definitive sounding and people will pull it out. But often I see it as um as kind of a, a fear of having a discussion about things that are more nuanced and squishy. But what better place to talk about life that's nuanced and squishy than in gospel doctrine class or in a church yeah. class? I mean, rather than going there and, you know, being kind of pounded with a quote, I think it would be great to say, you know, here's an issue that's complicated and here's one angle. And then the person say, yeah, I've encountered that issue, but I, here's here's my experience with it. You get five people's experience about a complicated issue. That's really helpful because now you can go back and say, okay, how do I address this issue with with kind of wisdom from from five other people that I can can use. Yeah. But but I think we're uncomfortable with that. Generally, I think it just kind of like a social interpersonal level. It's hard to talk about things that are nuanced and squishy and mm-hmm. and personal maybe. But then I think at kind of a, even a churchy level, we like the idea, or at least our brains like the idea that there's an answer to everything and it's easy and it's clear and it's simple and here's what it is. And I think that's often what rubs us wrong in real life because it isn't always easy and simple and clear. And so we need better conversations about what to do in real life rather than 
Here's a quote for that. Yeah. Pin, pin it on your fridge and memorize it. You know. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. It, it, even the like the different tone that can come in different. Like a Bruce R. McConkie quote is much different than a Gordon B. Hinckley quote, right? Like he's very, was very like, yep. like this is the way it is, and and that's the doctrine, and you know, <laughs> end of story. And you know, and others are more like this is how I see the gospel, and I hope that you find a lot of love in that quote, and you do. It's like, right. oh, thank you, right? And so. Sometimes quotes can come across sounding like this is definitive when in reality, well, it may not be just from that one quote, right? Right. Yeah. Any thoughts, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's even been some stories that have been perpetuated by our our general leaders, right? Sure. In conference talks throughout the years, and now we find out, oh, well, we have more information or whatnot. Anything, any guidance on that? Because sometimes those are easier to be perpetuated. Right. Yeah, I would uh, I would also say, you know, if you're if you're the teacher, the speaker, whatever, it's your responsibility to to teach something true. If you find it somewhere in the talk of a general authority, I don't think that that's uh evil to say, I wonder where that came from or I wonder if there's more to that story. You know, they're telling a pioneer story, so it's a general conference talking about pioneers. The next question is, huh, I wonder where that came from. Is that from someone's mm-hmm. diary? Is that from a book and and it might be in the footnotes of the conference talk. You could go check it out. It might not be. Then you have to do a little bit of kind of, uh, of of another search. But but yeah, I think if it's something, so there it could be uh, wrong. Could be something we've just learned more about. Yeah. You know, one thing that people are also kind of squeamish about is the idea that we know more about history. You know, there's a kind of idea like, well, the the past is over. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We know everything, and and that's the way it worked in school. Mm-hmm. The, we knew everything about the past. You just memorize it. You take the test. But in real life, we don't know everything about the past, and we're studying it. We're learning it. We find new new voices, new experiences, new records. And so, we could have told a story forty years ago, and now after the Joseph Smith Papers, after uh, you know all kinds of information is available and and published. After, you know, we've had 40 years of scholars doing really great work in, in Mormon history, church history topics. We just know so many more things than we knew 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 yeah. years ago. So that's great. That's yeah. wonderful to know and, new things. And the fact that we don't know everything about the past is, it's interesting what it does because, you know, Joseph Smith is sort of our George Washington, right? We sort of create this superhero-like figure. And uh, I have a Anthony Sweat that painted a great picture about of the prophet Joseph. And I appreciate it so much because it humanizes him a little bit. And as a leader, I love looking at that picture saying like, you know, Joseph was figuring it out too. I mean, he was a prophet, seer and revelator, but this is some tough stuff that he was going through and messiness. And so when we, we think we know the past and then we sort of create these superheroes out of these, these men that were simply flawed and, and really doing their best as a mortal. Yeah. And I think there's, to me, there's, it's more helpful to see someone who struggled yeah. and the Lord helped because I'm struggling. And that gives me courage that, oh, okay, the Lord will help me too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And just off the top of your head, and I mean, are there, there is there a top five of, of some of these stories that maybe even got perpetuated from in conference talks and whatnot? Are there certain ones that we should look for? Oh, sure. I mean, Definitely the uh, the story of the crickets and the seagulls oh, has yeah. been exaggerated and kind of stretched beyond the historical events. What I often find is that the historical events are inspiring too, but people come and add <laughs> too to try and make it more more inspiring. Uh, so I kind of walk through that one in the in the book. Another one I treat in there is the story of the rescue of the uh, Martin Willie Handcart companies. That's one. That lots of 
you know, exaggeration works in two ways. It works in one way by leaving out lots of details. And so in that one, for example, there were also two wagon companies there. It wasn't just the handcart companies. And then mm. there were many more rescuers than just three, the way it gets perpetuated, the three, there were three young men. And so, so details get lost. And, and then, as, and as you strip away all the details in the context, then yeah, what you're left with are just people that are nearly perfect and, and shining and gleaming. And so, uh -huh. you, uh, but then the other way they exaggerate by adding two things. And so, so th that story is one that has, has been tugged both ways, so details lost, details added. You asked for five, huh? What am well, I up no, to? I'm, I'm just, up to two. Is uh, there random? If there's any others, I don't need five, but you know, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, actually in the, the chapter in there that, that talks about the exaggerations and things also looks at the milk stripping story, the Thomas Marsh oh, yeah. story. And that's one where um, they tell that story in a, in a really reductionist way that Thomas Marsh left the church because of milk and then all kinds of evil things happened. Okay. Uh, and it's really lost a lot of detail and- and frankly, it loses, a, you know, a lot of the devotion of Thomas Marsh and his wife. And yeah. uh, I mean, he was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve and he had done lots of uh, wonderful things. He had had previous kind of challenges with Joseph uh, and they, they'd worked those out. I think there are inspiring stories there. Uh, so anyway, that's maybe the, yeah, the that, big warning simple. sign. When you start simplifying things a lot. That's yeah. a warning sign that there probably there's more to the story. Yeah, and one thing I I seen that that I think is dangerous is that we we sort of weaponize some of these stories or, or we try and manipulate people like oh Thomas Marsh he left the church over milk and and you're worried about this little thing that the prophet said like you better watch out like you you could leave the church and it's like we don't give space for people to maybe wrestle with some of these things that are a big deal to them and they are difficult to handle. And that's okay that they're going through that process. And sometimes we think, well, don't be like Thomas Marsh, you know, he left the church over right. milk. Well, and the first time that story was told in a kind of general church meeting setting in that really reduced way, it was with a kind of really petty moral, which was, you know, you all aren't taking care of your fences. That was the moral of the first mm. public telling. And so, but one of the the challenges with those kind of stories too is that they're true and they're not. Yeah. And so, and they get disconnected, the two. So there are facts and details in the story that get distorted and aren't true. But often underneath, and in the book I describe this as a script, there's a script to the story that's different than the details that's true or that we want to be true. And so in this case, we like the idea, which shows up in scripture, that small things have large consequences. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the idea behind telling this story. And then, then people apply it, you know, clean up your fence or do your home teaching or whatever they've applied it to. This is a small thing. So, so those things are going on at the same time. So we could have stories filled with false details, but we could have a kind of idea that's saying, I'm really trying to encourage you to pay attention to small things because small things matter, which can be true at the same time that your facts are wrong. And so paying attention to the script is really important. Yeah. And even as you talk about weaponizing, I think right now in our culture, there is a weaponized script that pits an us versus them and mm -hmm. either or. And people hear facts about an event and the facts just kind of fall into their script. And right now, and it's larger than church culture, it's American culture, we're extremely polarized in a lot of ways. But the first reaction that many people have to any kind of event, somebody speaks somewhere, an event happens, something happens on social media, 
is immediately it falls into the us versus them script. Mm. And then it just shows up in little things like, well, I stand with, well, that's a confrontational either or, but they'll say like, no, I love people and I stand with, and what? no, stand with, underneath, whatever the facts are, underneath, you have a script that's shaping your whole story. And that script is confrontational and it's oversimplified us versus them. Yeah. And seeing that is hard because scripts are invisible. Yeah. It even, that concept becomes magnified when you start trying to have these discussions or dialogues over social media, right? Like it's just a platform that's not designed for effective communication and you default to these, I, you know, stand with or confrontation or here's the facts, here's my link, here's my article, now story over, right? And that's just not helpful to our society in general. No, it's not. And in fact, social media is designed for something totally different. It's designed to pour a whole bunch of content on you and have you click or see it. And because that's the revenue model. They get revenue if you see or interact. So it's designed to just, for you to not to think about something. You're not supposed to think about it. You're just supposed to click like, because those impressions, Mm -hmm. those views, whatever, that's what. And so the environment is literally designed to make us not think, but to just uh, react. Yeah. Really interesting. Good discussion. And along this, in the same vein of, and I don't know if this is directly related to a concept in, in your book. I, I think you talked about it a little bit, but we have a tendency, and this is a human thing. It's not like just our church culture, but I often hear, like, a, for example, I was visiting a ward a few months ago and, and during fast and testimony meeting and, and someone stood up and he was a former leader, you know, local leader of some type. And he told this story about a few years ago, he was sitting in church and he got this clear impression of of why we would be more pushed more to do church at home and maybe this upcoming turmoil and that that he now connects to the pandemic and whatnot. And that was it. So he sort of left us with, I had this amazing experience. I sort of knew this was coming and isn't that amazing. And we, and I, I've heard it termed magical thinking. Like we want to show that the gospel's magic, like voila, look what happened. And aren't, isn't your faith grown now that I told this miraculous story? Any thoughts around that as far as you know, not only do we take historic concepts and blow them up and make them magical, but it's just sort of a th- concept in general, right? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's a something that's that gets used to to manipulate us, to mm-hmm. to trick us, to to make us feel self-satisfied or, you know, uh, one of the I think most important kind of prompts of the gospel is that we're always looking inward. You know, it's Peter asking and the other disciples, Lord, is it I? You know, when, when they hear something and, and, and being introspective, being reflective, being, it's, it's about my relationship with God. But these kind of stories and this approach to kind of make it magical turns it outward and showy. You know, mm-hmm. like, let me show what I can do. Yeah. But the scriptures teach the opposite. You know, Jesus is really clear. You don't need to show anything in public. God sees in secret. And he'll see it in secret and he'll reward you. Uh, that's <laughs> yeah. very, the, the, the only, as far as I could tell in scripture, the only devotion that we're supposed to show publicly is described in section 59, the Doctrine and Covenants, where it says that we should go to the, to the house of the Lord once a week and offer our devotions and our sacraments. So the only thing we're supposed to show every week publicly is that we are repenting. Yeah. <laughs> Everything else, the Lord's like, no, no, no. I'll see that. Don't worry. Yeah. Even when you put your candle out of the bushel for people to see, they're not supposed to say, oh, you're amazing. They're supposed to glorify God <laughs> when they see that. And so, if that's not the takeaway of the story, then something's out of sync. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, we heard the, 
I've heard this concept that, you know, those who, you never ask an apostle if he's seen Jesus Christ, because that's such a sacred experience that he probably doesn't want to talk about it anyways. And sometimes we do that to ourselves. We have sacred experiences. So we feel like, well, I definitely need to get up and fast and testimony and definitely share this. When in reality, as we do that, we sort of come across as, you know, this is mystical, it's magic, and this should build your faith because I've had this witness, but mainly just saying, I've had a witness and I'm repenting and Jesus is changing me. I don't fully understand and I can't prove it to you, but it's changed me, right? Well, and I think the idea of building faith is an interesting one, or often in the context of rumors and things, it's it's a kind of faith-promoting story. Yeah, you know, yeah. What, what, is, <laughs> what does that mean? And I think it's important to step back and say, well, what do you mean by faith? What are you promoting with mm-hmm. the story? Because if faith just is you know, oh, I feel good and it makes me shed a tear, then yeah, you can promote that Mm -hmm. with a cheesy movie or a silly story or whatever. But if faith is something like what President Hinckley taught, like a muscle, then how do you promote muscles? Well, you use them and you provide resistance and you do repetitions. And so, if you're promoting that kind of faith – well, then you're doing really hard work and you're not just sharing, you know, Elder Holland called them spiritual Twinkies. You know, those <laughs> that's empty carbs and you need to be working. And so, so yeah, how do you build faith? I always start with, well, what, what are we talking about? What's faith? Because we got to make sure we build the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. You mentioned this concept a, a bit, but I, as far as like uh, projecting opinions, and this is why some of this this exercise of working the muscle of really understanding what the scriptures say or what history is, because uh, for example, it often happens in politics. Like you talk to any general person, and it's like they're convinced that the quorum of the twelve voted for the exact same guy that they voted that they for, did. right? And and we sort of feel like, yeah, they're not they can't come out and quite say it, but they really think like me and believe like me, and then. And we see various examples today where something comes out and it's like, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. <laughs> you were thinking like me. And so, and there's this cognitive dissonance that happens, right? right? And so, sometimes we want to maybe weaponize in a different way of sort of proving, and we talked about this earlier, but proving our projections of, of the world in general and politics and everything, right? Anything else to say around that concept? No, I think you're raising a really, really important observation. And that is that, you know, the scripts that we have are based on assumptions and we assume Mm -hmm. they're just like me or I'm just like them or I'm right on track or I'm... And the problem with assumptions is we don't test them. We just assume them. Then we act Mm -hmm. on those things. And so, learning how to notice, oh, I'm not acting on information. I'm acting on just... uh, well, I always thought this or like that's, bias, that's right? what I think. And yeah, yeah our, then it becomes influenced by our, our personal hopes and dreams and goals or what we, whatever we, whatever, however we imagine the world, that is what's coloring what we're encountering and not yeah. really a kind of clear engagement with what's actually going on. Yeah. And I found just in my personal experience, as I've sort of sat with some of my assumptions and dug into them or pushed against them or maybe saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just assuming this, but maybe I can learn more. Like th- there's a lot of faith building in that and testimony or conviction of prophets as I'm like, wow, like makes you see the messiness in how your own brain works and also how the world works. And then you gain a deeper level of faith that way as you explore those. I think so. I think you gain a deeper level of faith. I think another thing that happens as you question your own assumptions is you gain deeper charity. You start to see 
that other people see the world differently yeah. and you start to see the validity in the way they see the world and you have love for the way they're interacting with the world. And so your empathy grows, your charity. And, you know, these are also Christ-like characteristics, mm -hmm. not just, you know, be bold and have faith. It's also be quiet yeah. and listen and be humble and submissive and meek. And those come as we think about, oh, maybe I don't know everything yeah. and maybe I can change what I think. Yeah. And there's such a, such unity that's created in, as we do that, you know, if we want to unify a group of people, a ward or whatnot, that's where we gain empathy and, and unity is found there. So any advice as far as, I mean, you know, leaders deal all the time with individuals who are in the midst of, they begin to question their faith, information that they found. And maybe as a leader, you're looking at like, that's not true. Like I, I know I, or, or it's partly true or whatnot. Like how would you coach someone to help somebody who's beginning to question their faith because of information or a quote or historical facts or things? Yeah, that is a great question. And it's so important right now. And the book is largely about how to think. And then I do have a chapter toward the end where I apply that to, so what do you do when your friend is in crisis? And what I share there is my kind of heartfelt belief, but also kind of my personal experience that a lot of times, one of the things that's missing in the equation is is knowing how to think about things. And so maybe this will help. People say, I have, I have a problem with church history. And we often leap to the conclusion that it's a church problem. And so we start to talk about it in church terms, hmm. faith, testimony, worthiness, do I, you know, maybe I'm not worthy to be here. Maybe I don't have a testimony after all. We treat it as a church problem. But I think for many of the things from church history, we need to go at them with history tools, not church tools. And so one example, I've had people say to me, how could there be four accounts of the first vision? And what I hear there isn't, you know, something about their testimony. What I hear as a historian is, oh, this is a person whose only experience with history is in school where there's one textbook and you memorize it and that's all there is. But in reality, we as historians, we love having multiple accounts of things. If tomorrow, the, you know, there are five accounts of the Gettysburg Address. Nobody knows that. They just were assigned to memorize one. Yeah. But uh, historians behind so the scenes- different? They're different. Oh, um, I don't know what to believe now. <laughs> they're different. And yeah. so, uh, which is great. And that's what that what makes us excited. And if tomorrow another account of the Gettysburg Address were to sur surface, that'd be national news. And yeah. people, you know, if there was a letter where Abraham Lincoln says, well, this is what I was trying to do and what we would love that. And so, so that's kind of an example of history tools. If you're thinking about evidence and sources and nuance and gaps in our knowledge. Those are historical things, not church things. It's not about worthiness. It's not my personal worthiness isn't causing there to be four accounts or two accounts. That's just how history works. And so learning more about how history works and changing the script away from, you know, there's kind of a faith crisis script out there that runs really oversimplified. I encountered new information. I hadn't heard about it before. It made me nervous. I learned more. And now I have to choose. I either stay or I go. That's kind of a, a script that's out there, invisible, that kind of shapes the way people react. Well, there's another script for encountering new information. It's called learning. Mm. You know, and it, it kind of cracks me up when people say, well, I served a mission and I never heard this. And I just think, 
well, you were 19. What do you think? Yeah. Of course you don't know everything as a 19 year old or, and so why not have a script that says, oh, I learned something new and that's great. Oh, I believe in learning. I'm supposed to learn my whole life. I believe that what I learned will go with me into the the resurrection. That's a another kind of script that we could apply. But so yeah, but so I think as a counselor, if someone comes to you and asks for advice, I think you really need to listen to them uh, and love them and kind of understand exactly what they're thinking. Then I do think there's a chance to rewrite the script, help them rewrite the see how to think about things and then ultimately always I think you'll want to point them back to the Savior. I mean, people who struggle, if you struggle, you lack peace. And so I think it's really significant that Jesus calls himself the Prince of Peace. Mm -hmm. I think it's significant that multiple scriptures teach that the Holy Ghost speaks peace to our mind and to our hearts. Peace is different than certainty. I can have peace about something that I don't know everything about. And so I like the way that Paul says it's peace that passeth understanding. Those can be separate. And and so it it doesn't it never works to say well here's how I figured it out just lean on my testimony or just don't worry about it we got to point everyone back to the savior and he's the source of peace yeah yeah that's really helpful any other point or principle that we didn't touch on want to make sure we hit on before we wrap up or did we do a good job you asked great questions <laughs> i enjoyed it well good well, and if there's a you know you can then go read the book right that's that's, a, right. that's why you have the book here <laughs> so the last question i have for you is just from your experience putting this book together, the research, and obviously this is probably many decades of your life, that just little things you picked up here and there, but how is uh, exploring real versus rumor, facts versus myth, how has that deepened your faith in the gospel? That's a great question. I think for me, one of the most influential scripture passages over my life has been Alma 32 that talks about planting a seed and growing all the way to eternal life. But there's a moment right in there where you plant the seed and then it sprouts. And then Alma says something interesting. Well, two things interesting in there. The first thing he says is when it sprouts, he asks, is this not real? And then the other interesting thing he says is after it sprouts, your faith goes dormant. That's his word, Hmm. dormant. And so I think there are people who will say, oh, well, I don't feel the same that I used to feel. And my response to that is, well, of course not. You felt nice at EFY, and now that's grown dormant. Now it's time to grow up and nourish your tree. Yes, it sprouted, but you don't have fruit. There's a long way to go and a lot of work to get the fruit from that tree. And so you want to be developing different faith that's more like the muscle kind of faith, the hard work kind of faith. But the anchor to that, I think, is Alma's question is this not real? Then there are other scriptures that talk about truth is knowledge of things as they really are, as they really were, as they really will be. And so for me, that has been a really significant tie to thinking about faith. What is real? Is it real that God answered my prayer that night that I prayed? Uh, is it real that I you know, had an experience reading the scripture? Is it real the experience I had with the priesthood blessing that uh, that solved an issue that I was uh, worried about. I think seeing what is real is a really important part of drawing close to the Savior. 
That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three free sessions of the LGBT Saints Library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.